You here with a mission, sir? I am. Trying to get me back in the world? Trying to save it. You think you're the only superhero in the world? You become part of a bigger universe. You just don't know it yet. What if I told you we were putting a team together? Who's we? I'm here to talk to you about the Avenger Initiative. This is now playing's The Avengers Retrospective Series. The Avengers. That's what we call ourselves. Earth's Mightiest Heroes type thing. Part of the now playing Marvel comic movie series. Well, I guess that's worth a look. Hosted by Arnie. Let's face it, this is not the worst thing you've caught me doing. Jacob. You've been called the Da Vinci of our time. Absolutely ridiculous, I don't paint. And Stuart. I never had a taste for this sort of thing. But I must admit, I'm deeply enjoying the suit. What are you prepared to do? At NowPlayingPodcast.com, we will be reviewing all the Avengers movies. Iron Man. I'm just not the, the hero type, clearly. The Incredible Hulk. He was a freak accident. The goal is to do it better. Iron Man 2. Never has a greater Phoenix metaphor been personified in human history. Thor. You're big. Fought bigger. Captain America. How many of you are ready to help me sock old Adolf on the job? And ending with a weekend of release review of The Avengers. I have an army. We have a Hulk. Let me emphasize that what I'm about to share with you is tremendously sensitive both to me personally and the army. This podcast will contain detailed plot spoilers and mild language. Listener discretion is advised. I've always been more curious than cautious. So, are we going to do this? Gentlemen, you're up. Today we're discussing Iron Man, starring Robert Downey Jr., Terrence Howard, Jeff Bridges, Gwyneth Paltrow, and John Favreau, directed by John Favreau. I am Arnie Man, co-host of Now Playing Arnie Man. Stuart in LA. This is Jacob, and yeah, I can podcast. Guys, we made it. I know when we were doing Howard the Duck and Man thing, there were some <laughs> doubters to if we would make it. No, not me. I was always on board. Woo, how many hours have we spent trying to scale the heap that is the Marvel Universe to get to what I think is, I'll just go ahead and say it, the real Marvel movies. These six movies we're about to do is what I associate with the direct lineage of Avengers, right? These are the real Avengers movies. They are. These are the movies. I mean, honestly, this is perhaps the fastest moving franchise in the history of cinema, right? I mean, we're getting six films in the span of four years. Well, I've only seen two of them, so it's hard for me to say, but I'm going to make up for lost time. And you know what? I'm looking forward to it. As much as a grouse as I've been, and rightfully so, on some of these limbs off of the tree, I've always wanted to see these six, and I'm curious to know how they think they can combine a billionaire weapon designer, a mutating scientist, a Norse god, 
and an American icon, how they can stick them all into the same universe. It's quite an ambitious feat, and I'm hoping they pull it off. What's funny with me is, like, these Marvel movies now become the big summer blockbuster event, and every time I say I'm not going to buy into it, I'm not going to get caught up. I mean, even with this first Iron Man movie, I'm like, it's an Iron Man movie. Who cares about Iron Man? Why do I want to go see him? And every year, Thor comes out, Iron Man 2, Hulk, I find myself in the theaters opening weekend. (laughs) So there's something about these. I mean, they have some draw. Yeah, I'm the comic book guy, but they're slick Hollywood films, but they get me in there every time. I'm the, the same boat, Jacob. When Iron Man came out, honestly, I didn't care. I really didn't. Never been a fan of Iron Man. And he was, at best, a C list. Marvel hero. All I knew about Iron Man is that Stuart, one time you came to my house back in high school and were telling me how cool his suit was. And I'm like, eh, I don't like it. Yes, this is a weird, bizarro world in which I know more about the character than you guys, because for two weeks I decided I was going to collect the comic book Iron Man. I think, yes, largely because I found the suit aesthetically pleasing, but I ultimately didn't stay with it because the superhero genre. It just wasn't the kind of comics I was drawn to. I spent my money more on Fright Night and Akira. (laughs) But yet, the trailers for this, I was there opening night because the trailers looked so damn good and walked into the theater a skeptic and walked out of the theater a i guess stanley would call me a true believer well here's the funny thing i knew iron man but i didn't know he was an avenger why iron man i think that's the valid question if you are kicking off this hugely ambitious super team why would you start here this was the culmination of a decade-long or longer strategy. I mean, here we have a movie not based on Marvel characters, but a movie made by Marvel Studios, their first self-funded film. And you really have to hand it to Avia Rod, who single-handedly pulled Marvel out of the depths, started with making some toys and doing some cartoons. We've talked about his influence in Blade, X-Men. Man-Thing. Man thing. He was instrumental with Spider-Man and he basically was already a mini studio because he wouldn't just sell the licenses. He would go to studios and say, we have this license. We have this director. We have this writer. We have this plot outline. Would you like to make a movie? And studios don't really like that. They like to be able to do their own thing. So finally it became time for Avia Rod and the new chairman of the Marvel Studios decided they were going to fund their own films and have complete creative control, and they took out a loan for $525 million to make 10 movies over 8 years based on their properties. So, this was the plan, the Avengers, that was all the plan to build up to that? Is that what you're saying? Not entirely. They didn't own a lot of their characters even when this was starting. The characters they had, and this is a funny list, when they went into this, the ten characters that they put up as the ones that would make back this $525 million were Ant-Man. <laughs> An original Avenger. <laughs> Still talking about doing that movie with Simon Pegg. Black Panther, also an Avenger, Captain America, Cloak and Dagger, a couple of don't-do-drugs message-waving mystics, Doctor Strange, Yay! Hawkeye, who we'll be getting to, Nick Fury, who we'll be talking about this podcast, Power Pack, a little super team. Oh, are you serious? Yes. They use the power of rainbow and unicorns. How have we not had that yet? <laughs> Stewart, you got to be dying for Power Pack. You'd love it. 
You are so lucky that the Power Pack live action series they made was only a 20 minute pilot and not a made for TV movie. That's all I'm saying. <laughs> and Shang Chi, the master of Kung Fu, big in the seventies, kind of a hard 21st century sell. And finally the Avengers, but none of like the name Avengers except Captain America. It wasn't until 05 that they were able to reclaim the rights to Iron Man back from New Line. Iron Man had been in development hell. Stuart Gordon was going to do it for some time. The guy who'd made Reanimator. Tom Cruise was going to be Tony Stark at one point. Uh. Nicolas Cage was going to be Tony Stark at one point. Quentin Tarantino was approached to write and direct it. I mean, this thing had been everywhere. New Line actually had Joss Whedon lined up to possibly direct Iron Man, but it never panned out. Marvel got it back and realized that of their name characters, Iron Man was the only one to never have been put into a live-action format. Damn, it came so close. Bill Bixby had lived, they wouldn't have been able to say that. (laughs) That sounds so mean. (laughs) Thank God he died. That's what you're saying, Stuart. (laughs) I don't think I said that, but he is a martyr for the cause. It's what got Thor held down, right? (laughs) So that was why Iron Man. They decided they wanted to do one that just hadn't been done. Okay, fair enough. And again, I advocate. Cool suit. Good looking superhero there. I mean, I think that it's an easy sell in the sense that sometimes you put on the costume and it's like, oh, no, (laughs) I'm looking at you, Daredevil. But yeah, he's like for people that grew up on Power Rangers, he's the next logical step. Well, yeah, I mean, during a time of economic recession, who doesn't love a capitalist billionaire superhero? I mean, this is what he was written at in the 60s. Stan Lee wanted to write someone that was the capitalist selling arms. You know, Vietnam had been going on for a few years. I mean, they really try to make this character that was really kind of unlikable in his private life, except when he put on that suit. Of course, it was before the big protests against Vietnam. Those would be a few years after his creation. Not long, but there is a few years there. It's not like this was an anti-counterculture comic at the time. Oh, no, this was a big pro-capitalism, anti-communist comic until Vietnam started going south and they kind of toned that down and changed the tone of the book. But I talked about this when we did Green Lantern. The reason I was excited for Green Lantern is I felt that was DC's opportunity to do what Marvel ended up doing with Iron Man. I think in the public's eye, Green Lantern and Iron Man were probably pretty much on the same level. Not a whole lot of pop cultural influence to to most people. And really have that chance to do something different, not the brooding Dark Knight or the Boy Scout Superman, but to do a new type of superhero that's cocky, suave, good-looking, a a ladies' man. He's basically Batman, right? He's got a lot of cool toys, and he's a very rich playboy. That's Bruce Wayne, right? Yeah, Bruce Wayne's a sullen dick compared to Tony Stark. I mean, (laughs) I'm in love with Tony Stark after watching him in this film. Oh, I'm not saying you're wrong at all. We're going to get into Batman. I agree with you, but Batman did come first. I mean, we talked in a previous podcast, who is Marvel's answer to whom? This seems like Marvel's answer to Batman. I don't know. There have been several here, but I do feel he is a part of this type of superhero in which they're not endowed with supernatural powers. He's super because he has money and because he's willing to put on the armor and fight, but not because he got a splash of radiation or anything. 
it's, dare I say, slightly more rooted in the real world. Which, again, makes me question, how are they going to get Norse mythology into this? <laughs> uh, we'll see. You're not alone in thinking that, Stuart. John Favreau agrees with you. And during a lot of the press for Iron Man 2, he's like, this is really the last hurrah. I don't envy the people who go to make Avengers and have to make this all fit. And more, Iron Man 3 poses a problem because now why can't Tony just call up his friends? And we notice Favreau doesn't return for Iron Man 3. So it is an interesting situation that we will be exploring. John Favreau gotta say unusual choice for this movie particularly at this time to me he is essentially the guy that was in swingers and was the sidekick in daredevil i mean i think of him as an actor first a director almost by accident later when the acting career fizzled I can't say you're wrong. I actually got to meet John Favreau one time, and this was after Iron Man came out, and I didn't tell him how much I liked Iron Man. I didn't tell him how much I liked Elf. I said, I loved you as Gutter in PCU. It's always about PCU to you, Barney. It always comes back to that movie. Yes. I'm not really all that familiar with Mr. Favreau's body of work, but Elf was enjoyable. Well, that's exactly my point. Why would you hand this guy, a guy whose biggest special effects movie was Zathura, why would you give him the reins to such a huge project that must be successful? I mean, it's not just about this movie. It's about a whole empire here. It's a lot to burden on shoulders. You'd think they'd want to go with a heavy hitter. But then again, who is the director of superheroes? I mean, I guess there hasn't really been an established one other than, I guess, Tim Burton had a couple cracks at it, and Joel Schumacher. By this point, we had Raimi, we had Singer. Sure. There were some. But, let's look at it. Favreau, I've actually seen every film he's ever directed, and he worked his way up. He started with Made, and it was pretty small. Zathura. Elf has a lot of heart, a lot of comedy. It also has a hell of a lot of special effects in it, dealing with all those elves and sleighs and everything. The end is an effects extravaganza, so he'd proven he could do effects, he's proven he could make hits, and he's proven he was able to have a heart. And what sold him to the studio was he went in and said, I'd like to do Iron Man. Oh, so you just had to ask nicely. (laughs) Jacob, you can back me up on this. There's one other thing that may have played in. Because he wasn't super established, he'd probably work a lot cheaper than a Raimi and a singer. And one of the things we're going to be discussing time and again in this Avengers series, Marvel doesn't like to pay a lot for their movies. They want people who will work cheap. And they said they were looking for someone who could make this like a big budget indie film. And when Favreau was interested, he met the kind of aesthetic they were searching for. That aesthetic being do what we say? Well, it's funny because he did say in a post-movie interview that he started off going to work for Marvel and before the contracts were signed, it was, yep, I'll do that. Yep, I'll do that. Yep, I'll do that. And as soon as the contracts were signed, it was, no, I want to do it this way. (laughs) I think that's the story of every studio project. But again, I'm surprised. He is not a person that I would have gone to out of 50 some odd names. I guess it helps if you're a fan or you sell yourself as a fan. But I don't know. I would have been nervous giving the reins to John Favreau. I wouldn't want Iron Man to be Elf. And I didn't know that he was capable of doing this until I saw it. And again, I think what helped him is Marvel didn't want this to be Independence Day or something like that. One of the things, in addition to scripts and things, Avia Rod was there 
hand-holding every production to make sure that they tried to infuse the movie with the heart of the characters. They say that Avia Rod should be credited with forcing studios to make the X-Men fight amongst themselves as well as fight the enemy and bringing in all of the, I guess, neurotic tendencies that are found on the comic book page. If you look at it that way, if you look at the comic book characters as being character-driven, not plot-driven, I think he makes sense. Yeah. But it's a strange way to look at it. Well, in order to determine that, we'll need to look at the plot, Arnie. How about a summary? Tony Stark is a billionaire playboy weapons manufacturer, CEO of Stark Industries, a company he inherited from his father, inventor Howard Stark. While in Afghanistan giving a sales pitch for his newest missile, the Jericho, Stark's army convoy is ambushed by a terrorist group called the Ten Rings, led by a man named Raza, and Stark is taken captive. During the ambush, his chest was hit with shrapnel, so to keep him alive, the Ten Rings have another captive named Yinsen, a surgeon, carve a hole in Tony's chest and insert an electromagnet that will keep the shrapnel from entering Stark's heart and killing him. These life-saving measures were employed so Tony could build a Jericho for the Ten Rings. They already have several Stark weapons, but they want the latest and greatest. Stark lies, saying he will build the Jericho, and what he really builds is an armored escape suit, a suit of iron driven by a computer. Bulletproof, armed with flamethrowers, and a jetpack so he can fly away from the base, he does escape, but Yinsen is killed in the breakout. Returning to the States, Stark immediately pulls Stark Industries out of the weapons business, knowing his weapons are being used against Americans. And this is much to the chagrin of Obadiah Stane, Stark's surrogate father figure who taught Tony how to run the company. Tony also works on building himself more suits, learning to fly in them and arming them. He also upgrades the power source in his chest to one far more powerful, and after mastering his suit, he then flies to Afghanistan and puts the smack down on the Ten Rings as they terrorize a small city. But Raza has not let things go. Scouring the desert, he's reassembled Stark's first suit from the remnants left there, and he goes to contact... Stain, who is underhandedly double-dealing weapons to the terrorists. Raza offers Stain the original suit in exchange for mass-produced suits that Raza can arm his troops with, but Stain takes the armor and has Raza and his men killed by his goons, because all corporate CEOs have Afghanistan goons. But Stain is really working to take control of Stark Industries. He's filed an injunction declaring Stark mentally incompetent and also has commissioned a suit of armor for himself. His scientists create a bigger, badder suit of armor, but they cannot replicate Stark's power source, the tiny arc reactor he put in his chest to replace the battery-powered magnet Yinsen built. Meanwhile, Stark found out about Stane's illegal arms sales and had his assistant, Pepper Potts, played by Gwyneth Paltrow, try to gather evidence. Stane disables Tony and leaves him to die without his reactor, and then, in his large armored suit, goes to kill Pepper for her knowledge, but Stark takes his original, less powerful reactor and arms up for a big brawl with Stane. The fight goes on for a long time and Stark is almost out of power, but Pepper overloads the large arc reactor in Stark Industries, disabling Stane's armor, and Stane falls into the reactor, dying in a fiery explosion. After this, Stark is given a cover story by Agent Coulson from the Strategic Homeland Intervention Enforcement and Logistics Division, also known as S.H.I.E.L.D., that Iron Man is Stark's bodyguard. But in the press conference, Stark can't keep the secret, and Ozzy Osbourne-like, he reveals, I am Iron Man, as credits roll. But after the credits, Stark comes home and is greeted by Nick Fury, played by Samuel L. Jackson, who says Stark isn't the only superhero in the world, and he wants to discuss the Avengers Initiative. So that is the movie. And I have to say, 
I really like the way this movie opens with we're instantly in Afghanistan. When I first saw this in theaters, I was actually a little bit pissed because there were a lot of scenes in the trailer of Stark before his capture. And I'm thinking, oh, God, is this another one where all the good scenes were cut for efficiency? But no, we start there. We see the ambush of the convoy and then we cut to a couple days earlier and get to see Stark pre-capture. I'm going to say what I love about this opening, and I complained about this with other Marvel movies, especially things like Ghost Rider, where there should be a lot of attitude, that this thing kicks off with ACDC back in black. Like, this movie has attitude, and it lets you know that right away. It instantly feels different. It's not your typical superhero movie. It's not what we were used to up until that time. I'm going to make the 100% claim that you owe that to our star, our unconventional choice, Robert Downey Jr. I think that this entire movie, 98% of its success, is due to the fact that they got this guy in the lead when, yeah, can you imagine how different it would feel if that were Nick Cage or (laughs) Tom Cruise? Actually, I can't imagine because we just did Ghost Rider a couple months back. Is this Robert Downey Jr.'s Pulp Fiction? Like, what Pulp Fiction did for Travolta? Did this do the same for Robert Downey Jr.? Because I really feel like he had disappeared, and it was a weird choice to have him in this film, that he wasn't someone that was on the tip of your tongue at the time. The thing about Robert Downey Jr. is, unlike Travolta, who just became kind of old and flabby, there's never been a time that I can remember when Robert Downey Jr. wasn't a sought-after actor, if he wasn't in jail or rehab, and if you could find a company that would insure him on the set. Yeah, I agree. I actually equate his rise here to Johnny Depp landing Jack Sparrow in Pirates. It's more like we had this oddity that we never knew exactly how to use, and suddenly we found the vehicle that can turn him into a megastar. People have always loved Robert Downey Jr., but he's like a best-kept secret, and a bit combustible, untrustworthy. His career was on the skids because of his addiction issues. He wasn't able, yes, like you said, Arnie, to get work. But it wasn't because people didn't want to hire him. Quite the contrary. But they took a gamble, and I got to say, it paid off perfectly. Yeah, when you say Johnny Depp and Pirates, that is the exact thing that I equate it to, because this man is the movie. He is Iron Man. When he is on screen, you are watching him. And he loves to ad-lib. A lot of the things that happened here were his idea. Honestly, in a lot of the making of stuff, I get the impression that Favreau wasn't necessarily in control of his cast, but he was able to rein in the production. But Downey was kind of all over the map and doing his own thing, and it worked. And again, with Pirates, Anything else there, and it wouldn't have gone, but you put this character in this way, in these circumstances, and it's instant gold, and it's visible right here in these early scenes where he's like, I don't want to see this on your MySpace page. Yeah, no gang signs. Okay, throw it up. (laughs) It's such a great opening scene. He's such an ass, and we love and laugh with him right from the get-go. I mean, if someone else had played this, we may have had a very different first impression about Tony. It would be very easy to see a jerk on the page that needs redemption. I mean, I think that, you know, knowing it's a redemption story, we could have stayed with the character. We would have still followed Tony Stark, but I don't know that we would have liked him if he didn't have the glint in his eye and the drink in his hand and the man that knows about all of this sitting in the chair. I mean, at this point, I gotta ask. 
is Robert Downey Jr. Tony Stark? I feel like he's been playing this in real life. <laughs> every time he does a public appearance, every time he does a different movie, I feel like I'm still watching Tony Stark here. I mean, it's almost hard to separate the two. They are as one. It's almost too on-the-nose casting because I knew nothing about Iron Man going in except that the guy was a renowned drunk. And one of his most famous storylines is the demon in a bottle storyline where he has alcohol addiction issues and Rhodey has to take over as Iron Man for a while and things. That's all I knew. And so by casting someone who's had very, very public battles with addiction and also has this charisma and this kind of energy, I think that Downey is stark insofar as... They both have these issues with addiction, but I don't think this is how I ever saw Stark portrayed in what few comics I read him in. I imagine after this, the character has changed and he's a lot more Downey-like. I mean, this instantly overwrote all that could have come before. Am I right, Jacob? Oh, yeah. I mean, they had to make instant changes almost because of the popularity of this movie and to make Tony Stark reflect Downey's Tony Stark more just with the charisma and the cockiness and, you know, just his personality. Downey gave him personality. He gave him that charisma. And they adopted that into the comics. And having a fairly recent brush with a character that you cited last summer, Jacob, as being identical in his movie portrayal, I now get why Green Lantern failed so badly. You're not wrong here. So much of the setup and the way that they introduce the characters are identical. But I gotta say, Ryan Reynolds, no Robert Downey. And that script was no Iron Man. So. <laughs> but the betting, the women, you know, the drinking, the partying, the don't care attitude. I love it here. Whereas in Green Lantern, it was constantly alienating. Well, you got to give it to Robert Downey because, Jacob, you asking if this movie minted him. I mean, this was Downey's year, wasn't it? I mean, you had this Tropic Thunder and then the next year, Sherlock Holmes. Now the man is an A-list star. When this came out, I think he was a bit of a gamble, not just for substance abuse, but for audience favor. Yeah, I don't think he's ever had to carry a movie in this way, and this kind of movie at that. It would have been a huge risk. Again, props to Marvel, Avi Arad, for taking a gamble on somebody that probably didn't look on paper like this most solid, sure thing. You know, John Favreau, Robert Downey, they prove themselves here. Right here, they say, we got the skills, but I would have been nervous if I was handing them $300 million and saying, make a movie. And this is why I'm so glad they kept in all those scenes before that I initially thought that might have been cut when we get to see him before going to Afghanistan. We get to see him in his everyday life betting that reporter... Christine, the gambling, the skipping the Apogee Award. I love the award because, you know, the writing in this is so tight. Notice what the award is? It's the moon and Apogee reflecting the distance and how far the moon is from Earth. And, you know, they're getting to the idea that he's scaled all these incredible heights, but they're also setting up things that they're going to do in the movie. And there's payoff and there's foreshadowing. I mean, right from the get go, I'm very excited with the level of detail that's being worked in here and how things pay off. Yes, we have a woman that he beds named Christine, but she's important to the plot. She comes back later. She serves the story. And that was stuff that can go very awry. 
<clears throat> Green Lantern. People are paying attention to the kind of details that change a rote superhero story into a really tight, well-written, emotional story that connects with an audience in a way that makes them want to return. I mean, I think that's key here. We've seen all these types, these stock characters, billionaires that become do-gooders. None of this feels particularly fresh. It's all in the little details that it really comes to life. And while I want to give most of the props to Downey, I think we can also salute a supporting cast here, which is populated by lots of character actors that I like. I agree. And in the early scenes, honestly, the standout for me was Favreau himself playing Happy Hogan, Downey's chauffeur. He doesn't do much, but he has this like brotherly repartee and this sense of cool. This whole movie exudes this sense of cool. And two of them have this effortless rhythm in their scenes together. Well, you know, it being in Vegas and them palling around, it couldn't help but trigger thoughts of swingers. And, you know, it was kind of had that vibe of like, at one hand, they thought they were the cool guys. But at the other hand, they're kind of winking and saying, I know that these guys are boorish and obnoxious, too. And I think you need that. And I think that's a tricky balance. They do well. And I think that's kind of what Favreau brings here into a largely mute role is a reminder of him being cool and in on the joke. And then the one we're supposed to focus on a little bit more is Rhodey. Colonel James Rhodes, played by Terrence Howard. An actor who was coming off an explosive year. Hustle and Flow, Crash, Ray, that outcast movie. He had been working a lot, playing different kinds of characters. And really, they were launching him to be a, a big star. And I think that he was a good get here. I liked Terrence Howard a lot. I really liked Hustle and Flow. So it was fun to see him here. I gotta say, he doesn't make much of an impression. But just having him in the mix makes me happy. I'm not with you on that one. I think he was a get. He actually made more money in this movie than Downey did. He was the first actor they hired. What? Wow. Yeah. But I don't necessarily get him in this role because whereas I don't know that Favreau has more than five lines in this movie, but I get his and Downey's relationship from their body language and their looks entirely. Here, I'm wondering this whole movie, and I've seen this movie a dozen times, I'm still wondering, are Rhodey and Stark friends? They kind of have that thing at the beginning where, like, they're friends, and they have a scene on a plane where they're drunk together, and Stark's getting Rhodey laid, but the rest of it, it's, like, very business-like. I could never pinpoint that relationship, and that's something that kind of bothers me. I kind of see it as a metaphor for military-industrial complex. It's buddy-buddy. Yeah, you make the weapons, I fire the weapons. They go hand-in-hand. They are just naturally buddies because of the nature of business and weaponry. I mean, I liked it for that reason. Is that the relationship here? They just know each other because Stark makes weapons and Rhodey's in the military? Yeah, he's a big Air Force guy, and yeah, Stark has done a lot for aerospace and weaponry. And they actually drop a line that he's advanced weapons specialist, Rhodey is. So he would be the one piloting and testing the weapons that Stark builds and recommending their purchase and not purchase. So that would be the business relationship, but that wouldn't be what makes him find Tony Stark at the craps table and give him some guff about skipping the Apogee Award. Yeah, why does he stay friends with him when 
Tony clearly doesn't want anything to do with the, like the business side. He wants to, you know, fly around the world, be a jet setter. Like I agree with you, Arnie. I don't get the relationship in this movie. Because it's seductive. You need a friend that's like this. I mean, it is the buddy cop thing. It's lethal weapon. I mean, they're two people with different work ethics who have a rhythm together. And you see him get seduced. He's late for his plane to Afghanistan. I'm so mad at you. We need to do work. Five minutes later, they're having drinks and those stewardesses are dancing around a pole they have installed (laughs) on the Stark plane. Love that. I love that Stark is so selfless. He lets Rhodey have the three-way. That's a friend. I need more friends like that. (laughs) We'll get into that relationship a little bit more later. In these early scenes, though, I'm taking it as their friends. It's later in the movie where I start to think that it's not played quite so well. I think they're both. I think they're friends who have a business need for one another. And there are many symbiotic relations here that are dysfunctional and charming. Pepper Potts. The secretary, what should be the thankless female role, it's really Stark that couldn't get through his day without her. Gwyneth Paltrow. Hmm. Why do people hate Gwyneth Paltrow? Do people hate her? Because I don't. They do. Really? Women particularly. I can't tell you how many women hate this woman. I'm not a woman and I just like her. I don't love her, but I've never hated her in a role. I'm shocked that people hate her. I smell it a little bit. I see how she comes across in interviews. I see the way that she has a public persona in which she's too goody-goody. She's so fluent in different languages and cultured, and I think it grates people. I actually think people think she's had it too easy, and things have come to her on a silver platter, and I don't know. It seems like jealousy. That's not it at all for me. I started off actually very much on the Gwyneth train. I discovered her in flesh and bone, thought she was pretty good there. Seven, I thought she was fine in. There was a period where I would see every Gwyneth Paltrow movie from Paul Bearers to Sliding Doors to Hush, all of them. If she was in them, I'd see it in theaters early on because usually she was involved in quality productions. Shallow Hal. (laughs) Let's get to Shallow Hal, shall we? I have to say around the time of the late 90s, I would think maybe Sliding Doors, Great Expectations around that time, I started to realize I'm seeing all these movies because Entertainment Weekly tells me I should, but how many of them have I really liked? Well, Shakespeare in Love. And then I saw Shallow Hal and she stunk that movie up. This isn't a Shallow How retrospective, but I don't think you can blame any one person for that movie. I can, and it's her, and I realized she gives the same performance in every role, and it's not that great a performance. She was perfectly cast in Shakespeare in Love, but I left Shallow How by thinking, this woman is no frickin' fun, and I don't ever want to see her in a movie again, and I didn't until Iron Man, and she was the one thing coming into Iron Man that made me go, oh boy, I have a bad feeling about this. And I am shocked, shocked, but this is the first time I've ever seen her look relaxed on screen. Yeah, I thought she played a great straight man to Robert Downey Jr., that for as charismatic and funny he was, she was much more grounded, and I thought she played off of him really well. The thing is, she wasn't a straight man like Rhodey was the straight man. She was there. She always had the gleam in her eye and the smirk on her face. She got the joke, whereas Rhodey didn't get the joke. 
she gives as good as she gets and that's why we like her that's why we want to see this couple get together where so many times it just feels like oh well here's the arbitrary girlfriend and he loves her because well she's in that dress here i mean she really understands him she gets his humor and she already bought her birthday present because she knew he'd forget and it was really expensive you know she's caught crying when he comes back from afghanistan but it's because she doesn't want to look for another job i think that it's just good repartee here it's light it's witty she's into the feel of this movie they are floating on air here they are not so grounded even though we get into some real world problems here afghanistan and a taliban kind of group they still can make it fun and light and old-fashioned it's a real talent, and I think that's what Gwyneth Paltrow does. I think she is a throwback to the stars of another era. I don't think she's worked in a lot of modern movies because she really doesn't have a modern sensibility to her. But when she's playing characters in other eras or playing in styles that were popular in other eras, she always works for me. And I think here, yeah, very Hepburn and Tracy kind of banter going on. Definitely. And it's funny because I like her the moment she walks on screen when I expected to hate her. The way she deals with that reporter, Christine, who's walking around in stark shirts and, you know, delivering the line, I also take out the trash sometimes. I mean, she was able to work the dialogue as well as Downey. She's not given as much to do here, but I think she was his equal on screen, whereas most others in this entire film are just diminished standing next to Downey. You just can't stand next to a light so bright. The one thing about Pepper, and I've complained about this in previous movies too, is she seems a little too conveniently set up as the true love interest. While women may come in and out of Tony's bed, only one woman is in his heart. And Jacob, in the comics, those two get together? They do eventually. I mean, there's a long, long history. She liked him. And then, you know, they did the whole Superman thing where she was in love with Iron Man and she didn't know it was really Tony. And then her and Happy Hogan ended up tying the knot for a while. And so that's why Favreau took the job. Yes. <laughs> I mean, now she's an Iron Woman. She's Oof. become Tony Stark, basically, in the comics now. Well, fortunately, they give those duties to somebody else. Somebody else who I like, by the way, Jeff Bridges, here as the mentor-slash-villain character. What kind of name is Obadiah? <laughs> it's biblical. Is it? Yes, he has a son named Ezekiel. I can't remember his father's name, but it's also biblical. Yeah, it's Old Testament. What about Stain? Did you not know he was a bad guy with a name like Stain? <laughs> you could tell he was created like in the 60s. <laughs> you know, Pepper Potts, the alliterations, Obadiah Stain. Yeah. I gotta say, Jeff Bridges, unrecognizable to me in this role. Can't believe this is Flynn. Can't believe this is the dude with the shaven head and the beard. I just don't see it. And also, I'm so used to seeing him play the more lackadaisical character. I'm sure I, I actually really like The Vanishing, where he was the bad guy. But normally, that's, this isn't what I associate him with. Oh, let's just call it what it is. It's nice to see him cleaned up because he's always playing a slob. You forget <laughs> that he used to have matinee idol looks. And when I see him in this part, sure, he's gotten older and the shaved head and all that, but it's working for him. I'm like, oh, that's right. You are a movie star. You do have that charisma when you want to turn it on. You're not always the dude. You're not always crazy hard. And even the first time watching this, I pretty much figured out pretty early on he was the bad guy. I still was charmed by him. I can see why you'd want to have him as a father figure. He stepped in when Stark's own dad died. Do we know why or in what circumstances? 
was he killed by Obadiah or something? Is there something nefarious in the past? Well, I know in the comics his parents died in a car accident. I don't know if they've given an in-movie cause of his parents' death. Mm. They haven't, and I never really thought to blame Stain because normally people who murder don't then sit around for 20 or so years and let the sun rise to power before they start to murder again. I took it as death of natural causes. I mean, they said Howard Stark worked on the Manhattan Project. He helped create the atomic bomb in World War II, so... He had children late in life, right? I mean, he had to have been pretty old. Yeah, you put it on the back burner to, yeah, build the bomb. I (laughs) I guess it makes sense. It kind of wasn't the way that Hulk's dad worked, but hey. (laughs) So at this point, I'm thinking death from natural causes of old age. Oh, well, see, I couldn't help thinking, you know, he's so resentful. I was trying to understand his motivations. We can talk about it as we get further in the movies, but the only thing I could understand is that he always wanted to be in control of the company. Tony Stark made the company, and he had as much power as Obadiah gave him, but Obadiah really was running it, from what I could perceive, and did not want to lose that. That's the only thing I can use to explain why he turns on him later in the movie. It's one of the weaker parts of the movie. It's one of the tougher things to swallow, but I believe it because I believe that this guy probably has always been ambitious and maybe a killer. It's such a problem just with origin movies in general is that when your focus is on the creation of a hero, the villain oftentimes doesn't feel as adequately fleshed out. Now, Stuart, you were the first one screaming that the Incredible Hulk pilot was an origin story without a villain, so obviously you have to have one, Mm. but I can't think of an origin story that did the villain right, including this one. Because for me, the fun parts of this movie, the parts that really get me going, is the first two-thirds, and really the villain there is terrorism. Yeah. I gotta say kind of shocked that post 9-11 we're not getting you know russian neo-nazis as the terrorists because that seems like the safe way to go i mean they did that in that clancy movie that came out after 9-11 hollywood wants to back away from portraying terrorists as middle eastern and they don't back away from that at all in this no i was surprised it wasn't a generic middle eastern location they call it out we're in afghanistan i give them major props for doing this it's the kind of thing that could have blown up in their face very badly (laughs) you're gonna put something that is a current war at the time of this release and we're only getting over it now and saying that you're gonna inject superheroes and supervillains into it it could be potentially very offensive i am so impressed with the tone that they strike they still create a real believable current world even though they have these fantastical elements and i'm gonna just go ahead and say it i think that's why this movie works in a totally different realm than so much of these marvel movies that haven't worked for me ghost rider daredevil fantastic four is that they have managed to strike that balance between real problems that are believable and threatening and a comic booky hero that we can love and idolize and only one other person has pulled this off christopher nolan i think that it's very rare that you can have that. And Nolan isn't about the humor. You know, that's the one thing that Favreau brings to this that Nolan doesn't really have is that lightness of touch, that just general sense of fun here. Even though we go to Afghanistan, he never forgets to make it fun. I personally credit Marvel for this decision. I don't know who did what when, but as I understand it, and Jacob, correct me if I'm wrong, the original 
Tony Stark origin story is very similar to this and very topical because he stepped on like a landmine and was taken captive in Vietnam during the Vietnam War. Ask me, because I actually own that issue. <laughs> you own Iron Man or Tales of Suspense, whatever, the first appearance? I think it was a reprint because I only paid a buck twenty-five for it. But either that or I'm really stupid because I think I sold it for, you know, some alien issue number 50. <laughs> yeah, you could be retired right now, you know, but maybe you don't want that. Maybe you like working. But yes, it was Vietnam, which at the time of its creation would be just as relevant and thorny and contentious as going into the war on terror is here. I like the fact that it mirrors so well here. They didn't back off from what made that comic work initially. And they keep the look. When he builds the Iron Man, I recognized it. They were studying the original designs. I was stunned that they went through this because I, of course, just being into Marvel Comics a little bit, knew these designs. I've seen the iconic covers, even if I've never read the issues. And for a movie to take on this and to give him the evolution through the three sets of armor that he has here is impressive because most screenwriters would look at this and say... We need to cut this down. We need to make it more efficient, more concise. And he would like build one suit of armor that maybe got a paint job at home. So I was very impressed they went through that evolution. Yeah, I was shocked because that original suit, it's not very good looking. (laughs) I I guess maybe in 1963, that was state of the art. But if they were going to try to pull that off through this entire movie, because that was his suit for a while until he came up with the gold one. Man, it's clunky. It almost reminded me of RoboCop at times, the way he walked and then all the noises it made. It looked like a deep sea diving uniform, really. I mean, it looked like something Jules Verne would put under the sea. But it makes sense in the setting. Like, I like how they worked it in. You're going to make this, you know, while being watched by terrorists in secret with recycled parts. Well, it's a pretty impressive suit. Yeah, and transformation is a big theme here. I mean, it should be for most movies, but we need to believe that Tony Stark is going to be different by the end of this movie. Having this evolution of suits, what suit he's wearing kind of tells you where he's at in his head and how comfortable he is being this superhero. At first, not so much. At first, (laughs) it's just clunky and functional. It's a way to get away. It's a way to get through the people that have held him captive. What about these scenes here? I mean... He does go through quite a bit, and while we've all said that we enjoy seeing Robert Downey Jr. as the slick-talking womanizer here, he plays it very serious, and it's him and Yinsen for quite a while, and I thought Yinsen was a spy for the longest time the first time I saw it. They do that to us intentionally. When he's originally revived, he's got this guy standing over him, we think, oh, he must be in it. You know, we make a generalization, and it was nice to realize that, oh, wait, no, he is actually an ally here. And then I knew pretty quickly, I'm like, oh, Yinsen is just not going to live through this. I hated (laughs) that they had to kill him, but I understand why they had to do it. Well, look, when Yinsen picks up that gun to scare away the terrorist and buy some more time, maybe if he would have pointed it straight instead of shooting up in the air, he would have lasted a little bit longer. (laughs) He's a doctor! He's not a fighter! What would he know? The Hippocratic Oath and all that. (laughs) (laughs) I hope he holds his scalpels better than he does his weaponry. I agree. He wasn't going to get very far down that tunnel, but he is a martyr that enables Stark to be a good guy. Again, a conceit that would make me hate him if I only loved Jensen and hated Stark. But because I still have admiration for Stark, I'll accept this. I'll accept the sacrifice. 
Well, also, Yinsen saves Stark's life. I mean, do you guys give this movie its conceit that Stark needs a magnet in his chest for the shrapnel? I go with it, but it's it's a little far-fetched. It's kind of how they wrote it in the original one, and it's just, you kind of have to do it. I guess you could just write it in a generic way, that the man invents a suit that's cool that is his latest weapon. I like the fact that it's dependent on him. I like that everything revolves around Stark's heart. Both metaphorically and literally, this movie is about Stark's heart. And that's such an important device that carries through. It's just good writing. So yeah, I definitely stay with it. Arnie, there's a lot of movies we reviewed through this retrospective. Yeah, I, I can buy that Stark had a battery in his chest that pulled shrapnel. If I could tolerate a duck coming from Duck World. <laughs> Which we didn't. I don't think we did, actually. I said tolerate. I sat through the movie. I spent a few hours talking about it. <laughs> oh, that's your definition of tolerance? <laughs> oh, but, you know, Stuart, you called it out. This isn't really a superhero movie. We don't even have to say it's superhero. This is science fiction because it's a regular guy and he's using science to make stuff. So just as a science fiction film, yeah, I could go along with that. That said, I got to say, how bad are Stark's weapons that the bad guys have them and they can't pierce this very clumsily assembled suit of armor? That's the conceit I have to swallow that's harder. It's like, well, if he has such badass weapons and these other guys have them and use them on him, why is he still standing when they fire at him? They were just shooting bullets. I mean, he made a whole suit out of his badass weapons. Now, one thing that Favreau did here, Favreau, when he went into this film, had mapped out a trilogy. And the trilogy is about these terrorists. It's not about Obadiah Stane's return. This terrorist group is called the Ten Rings. I know nothing about this other than what I've read. Apparently, this is a reference to some arch nemesis. Well, in all its 1960s sensitivity... One of Iron Man's main villains is the Mandarin. An orange? (laughs) No, I remember that guy. Yeah, and he's definitely not an orange. And he's definitely not something you can bring back without some concern for political correctness. Well, I guess this was his army and he has rings, I guess. I mean, I again, I've never read a comic with Mandarin in it. Maybe I should, but... I actually thought Raza, the ringleader here anyway, was a refugee from the Temple of Doom. That's what I was getting from it. (laughs) But yes, apparently they were going to end in part three if Favreau had seen it through with magic versus science and they were going to bring in Mandarin. Well, they're going to do that anyway. I I guess I'm glad the approach was to ease into it. I think I would have rejected it if we had at the center of this terrorist ring Osama bin Laden as a mystical cult figure. I think that would have been too much. I can go with the conceit of he creates a super battery in his chest. I can go with the conceit that he builds a highly technological computerized suit in a cave because he's just that big a genius. What I can't buy is that this suit can propel him almost into the atmosphere and then he crash lands in the sand and is fine. Yeah, it bugs me every time. (laughs) Like, that was a really far fall for him. And it's not like he's still in that suit. That suit's all over the place. And he's like six feet under the sand. I could see the suit being bulletproof. It is made of whatever. But I don't see how that's going to cushion your fall. (laughs) And this happens a lot. He falls a lot. 
Yeah, but I don't know. It, these things aren't a problem for me when I'm enjoying the ride. These things are a problem when I'm not sure about how I feel about the character or the situation, or I don't think that the action is very good. Here, I'm into this scene, you know, like, they have funny bits when he's busting out and he does the karate chop and gets his hand stuck in the cave and the guy comes up and shoots him in the head execution style and it ricochets and kills him back. I'm with these fight scenes. That's not always the case in these Marvel movies. So, yeah, that they end it with this unrealistic, yeah, he would be crushed and dead moment. I turned that off 30 minutes ago and I'm still having a good time. Oh, I completely agree with you because these things don't bother me, but... It's what we do here. We call them out. But the fact is, this movie, in a good way, it's like a music video. It's got this electric guitar score going through it. And again, this sense of cool that is just making it such a fun ride that when these things happen, I'm laughing like a Three Stooges skip. So here... I'm just going with it on that slapstick level. I'm having a lot of fun. By calling it out, I don't mean to imply it's a problem for me. It still bugs me. Like, Stuart, I love that whole ricochet off of Iron Man's head and it kills the guy who shoots the bullet. That's funny, but it's grounded somewhat for me. Again, I have this weird sense of grounding because I like comic books, and so I could buy into a lot of those conceits. But it still bugs me. Yes, it's a slapstick moment. It's one that bugs me, though, every time I see it. It skates Indiana Jones territory, and Indy didn't always have sure footing on that either. It's Indiana Jones 4 footing for me. It's nuking the fridge. Oh, I don't know. I would say Indiana Jones 2 footing. Which I liked. Jacob, if you have a problem with that suit crashing, do you also have a problem with the fact that Tony's just wandering aimlessly in a desert and a U.S. air convoy just happens to find him and it just so happens to have Rhodey in it? Yes, that bugs me too. Yeah, it's very convenient. And you know what? It happens in just about every movie like this. So I'll move on. I'll move on. I'm done. Good. Again, I call it out, but it does not take away any of my enjoyment. I sit there and again, I'm captivated by Downey's performance. And they've done it in 42 minutes. You know, Ghost Rider, he hadn't even transformed yet by this point. And here we've already had the whole creation arc and had the character changing into who he's going to be. It's so economical. It's so well done. Why is it so hard to do? Why can they not replicate this for these other movies? They make it look effortless here. They make it look so easy that in 42 minutes, they've totally told us the origin story and given us a hero we can believe in as he makes his steps towards personal transformation. You said it's economical. Again, I think having this whole origin story be separate from everything else is the opposite of economical. And the fact is that because of its montage style, it doesn't linger. It just is so kinetic and going on and it tells us everything through sight not through dialogue very few words in this movie matter well except for the first five minutes of exposition when we get a bunch of newspaper shots <laughs> yeah get past that and it's all show don't tell and why is it hard i think here they captured lightning in a bottle and that's a very hard thing to ever do correctly I agree with you. It's not like any of these people haven't gone and made terrible movies and terrible mistakes, but somehow the alloy here is perfect. I'm just loving the way that the parts all fit together. It's a perfectly well-oiled machine. And then they get back to the States, and realistically, it could fall apart like his first suit at this point. It could all go to hell when you put him back in the world. Sure. 
I mean, they put in their most obvious product placement at this point. He wants an American cheeseburger, so Favreau's got the Burger King. I'm like, that's right! DK did have an Iron Man tie-in. The fact that Stark drives almost exclusively Audis should also have come to mind. And everyone uses a Dell monitor. (laughs) But you know what? Yeah, all that kind of stuff can poison a movie if it's done wrong. But you know what? It takes a risk. Like Stark himself, it takes a risk. And he says, I'm not going to be the man that I am, and we're going to follow a different trajectory. And fortunately, it's just as good. I like watching Tony play in the lab. I like him finding his heart. You know, it's the plot of the movie. It's the real storyline. He's going to figure out how he can turn from being a, a weapons maker into a peacemaker. And it's not an easy transformation. I mean, at first here, Iron Man, it's still kind of a weapon, right? I mean, when he's building it at first, you got to be thinking that that's... The only reason to develop it, right? I never took it as that, but then again, I came in expecting a superhero movie, so... I mean, you understand my point. On one hand, he's saying, I want peace, I don't want to make weapons, and the other side of his mouth, he's building this incredible suit with lasers and missiles and all of that. So, he hasn't totally figured out how to do that yet. Yeah, why is he building this if he's turning against weapons? Right. I agree. I look at it as he's still a conflicted person. We're catching him in the middle. We're catching him with Iron Man suit 2.0. You know, he doesn't know what he's going to do with it, but he thinks of it like all of his material possessions. You know, he has such a rabid collection of everything, classic cars and just luxury items. I think that Obadiah calls him out later. It's like you're building the nuclear bomb and you want to keep it all for yourself. He's being selfish at this point as he's tinkering around. I don't know that he's being selfish because there is that one scene, and in watching it for this review, it really stood out to me, where he goes and sees Rhodey at the Air Force Base, and he tries to tell Rhodey about this, and Rhodey's like, you're back making weapons. He's like, no, not a weapon, not a weapon. And it's like he wants Rhodey in on this, but Rhodey, this is the scene where I start to really question him, because he's like, you need to get back and make us some weapons. Mm -hmm. And it's like, I thought you were his friend, you were drinking, he got you two girls, what's going on? And it's at this point that he then starts building the suit for himself. I don't think he was trying to keep it to himself. Rhodey's dick move made him decide to keep it for himself. Well, you could call it a dick move, but it is their relationship. He is expecting Stark to keep supplying him so he can win the battle in Afghanistan. There's high stakes there. And yeah, I think everyone just thinks the guy's gone soft. You know, he got scared three months in the cave at gunpoint, and maybe you aren't at a good point to think about running a weapons division. I mean, I think people cut him some slack, but yeah, they're not happy that he's going through this pacifist stage. They think it's a phase he'll outgrow, and he's trying to do what a friend would do in that situation, get the guy's head right. I get the scene. I do think it's interesting that he is the only one that Stark wants to tell, that this Obadiah mentor, he doesn't tell him. Why does he hold out on Jeff Bridges? Because his last name is Stain. Well... (laughs) Also, I get the feeling that Obadiah, he's far more interested in the bottom line. I think Tony wanted to go to someone who could see, I guess, the big picture and see that we're not in this for profit. I mean, truth be told, I've read around the time this movie came out that this suit is not 
all that unrealistic. The flying may be a little bit off, but we could have mech suits for our soldiers in the field. The government doesn't want to pay for them. They'd be too expensive. The life of a soldier isn't worth the money they'd spend. Yeah, they have panels about this kind of stuff at Comic-Con that I've been to. You know, what would it take to be the real Batman? What would it take to be the real Iron Man? And, and I've sat in on these and watched footage. I mean, they're nowhere close to the Mark II, but pretty close to the Mark I suit. <laughs> That's what I like. I mean, I really do like it when they can get me to believe. Even though I know that it's probably not totally there yet, when they can convince me of a reality of the fantastical, that's always when I'm at my happiest in the superhero world. I like it there the best. Speaking of belief, I want to give this movie a complete congratulations on its effects work. ILM blew me away because I cannot tell when I'm looking at the real props and when I'm looking at the CGI here. Oh, it's across the board, really good effects work. One of the things that really sells a lot of the effects for me, going back to Downey. I mean, there's scenes in here when he's in his workshop and you got these motorized arms and everything going on. I'm sure a lot of this was just green screen or little props that he had to interact with. And, you know, you hear about with Lucas and the prequels and that was the problem. Everything was green screen and it was hard to get into that natural acting state in that environment. Well, Downey made it look pretty damn easy, the way he interacts with all these things that aren't really there on the set with them. Actually, they're all really there on the set. Credit Favreau for building it. Well, Mm. cut all that. (laughs) (laughs) This was actually filmed in Howard Hughes' hangar where he built the Spruce Goose, if you want to go back to our aviator retrospective. And they built his entire workshop. And Dummy, I love Dummy. The little arm with the fire extinguisher hose. Yes. That's puppet work. There is a puppeteer off screen operating dummy and the only green screen in the oh yeah I can fly scene is they took away the wires. Mm. So you got to give some props to the production for doing that and making it something you can interact with versus the lucasism of this big green screen. It's a city. And this big green box, it's a dinosaur. Apples and oranges, it may be impossible to compare Phantom Menace with this work, but I can tell you I am convinced by what I'm seeing here. And I do credit it to as much as you can give the actors of a physical space and material objects, I think they play better in them. Yeah, big credits to this film because I thought there's no way Dummy was a real puppet. I mean, that would be CGI in any other movie. Yeah, and I can tell a couple of scenes, like when he just puts on the Mark II and it starts going through like it's flexing, that obviously is CGI. Some of the Ironmonger stuff becomes a little Transformer-ish late in the movie, but by and large, I don't know when I'm looking at ILM's model and when I'm looking at Stan Winston's model, and that is impressive as hell, because, Stuart, you always call me out for picking on the effects. I can't here. No, you really can't. Yeah, these flying scenes are so much fun. And really, again, I credit the music video type atmosphere that we're able to sustain a half an hour of a movie that almost has no plot. It's just watch Robert Downey build stuff. Well, I disagree with the no plot part. There are things happening that are plot centric, but they're doing it so well you don't notice. I love the scene where Pepper plays Operation with his heart and takes it out so he can get a new one in. We think that that's just a bit of comedy and some sexual repartee, but truthfully, it's aiding the theme of the movie, that he is becoming 
more heart-filled. And she is the one that is protecting it. Her sacrifice actually becomes instrumental when we get to the climax. If she had not been that role for him, he wouldn't have been able to do the big fight. I mean, it's that kind of maneuvering that makes me see this in such a better way than so many of these rote stories where, yeah, like they get a power and they find some hoodlum out on the street and use it and it's all very generic. Here it feels personal. It feels about the relationships. It feels character and plot driven even when it feels like throwaway bits. You're right in that every time I watch this movie, and again, I've seen it a dozen times or so, every time I see a new causal link between things that happen early and things that pay off later. Yeah. Some are obvious. The very first time in theaters, when Stark's flying up too high and he ices, and then later on it becomes part of the climax, I'm like, ah, all right, that was a Back to the Future type obviousness. But things like that heart and whatnot are so much a part of the later movie, and you get this on repeat viewings. And even that, I mean, the fact that Obadiah Stane had the moon statue and that they were both vying to be the one the leading the company, and who's going to have that? The fact that they both end up flying in the moon. I'm telling you, this movie is layered with beautiful metaphors and subtle little tricks. Maybe not all of them subtle, but just nice writing flourishes. It's the difference between good and great. He mentions at that point, too, shortly thereafter, he's got this artificially intelligent thing that he interacts with. Jarvis? Jarvis, yes. Yeah. He mentions about how they might be able to perfect the suit so that he can fly to other planets. I know he did that in the comic. Do you think they're setting us up for that? Do you think in Avengers that Robert Downey's going to make it past the ozone layer? I don't think so because there is a deleted scene in this movie that I actually wish they would have kept in. When Downey sees that the Ten Rings still have more Stark weapons and he wants to fly to Afghanistan, in the theatrical cut of the film, which is the only cut, you just think that he took off from California and flew to Afghanistan. In the cutscenes, he actually had to go to his mansion in Dubai under the guise of having a big party so that he could get close enough because his fuel wouldn't last that long. Mm. Well, you know, I hear these rumors about spacemen. I'm just wondering how far they're going to push it, maybe with the new suit. Maybe he can actually do that. It might be kind of cool to see, but then again, you worry about that balance, that tricky balance between how much is too much. If in the Avengers, if we see Tony fly off to Asgard and hang out on the Rainbow Bridge, I... <laughs> I don't know. You, you know, when, when you get those moments in the comics, those have been going on 30, 40 years. It's a little bit more acceptable to in, in these films. They're fresh. They're new. You got to work those physics, that logic into that film. Has that been done already? I don't think so. Well, also in comics in the 60s, they didn't understand jumping the shark. Iron Man may have been on Pluto by the third issue. You know, right now it seems like comics are trying to unring a lot of bells and bring things back more real versus the way they were back then where robo-bears and whatnot. <laughs> Speaking of robo-bears, do you guys see the Stan Lee cameo? <laughs> yes! This might be his best cameo ever. I loved it. He's mistaken for Hugh Hefner at the Fireman's Ball. Oh, it's wonderful because he's in a silk robe and with three hotties. It's great. He, so he wasn't supposed to be Hugh Hefner? I wondered that myself. What does it say in the credits? I was wondering if it would say Hugh Hefner in the credits played by Stan Lee because <laughs> I, I took it as he was just playing Hugh Hefner. 
Oh, well, interesting. I guess it definitely could read that way. To me, he was never seen from the front. Downey was obviously rushing into the party. A lot of things are going to happen there. He's not giving it the full attention. He would think from the back that, oh, there's some publishing guru with a lot of hot chicks around him. Must be half. Nope, it's Stan. <laughs> well, he's not in the credits, but they did trim the scene down. Because Stanley loves to talk. Yeah, and he turns around and Robert Downey goes, oh, I'm sorry, I mistook you for someone else. And Stanley goes, happens all the time. <laughs> so they trimmed it down, wisely so, but... It's great when you see him like this. It's, again, another great use of him. This, however, may be his last subtle cameo. We'll get into those. Okay. Well, I like this one. I like the ball there. It's the break from the action. We need time to catch our breath after he's flying all around and making all these suits. The excuse we're given is he needs time to tool the Mark III armor. Right. It's a five-hour paint job, and we're going to get the real suit. And you mentioned Jarvis. I love his sardonic wit towards Stark. Is like, oh, yes, that's far more subtle. Paint it red. Mm-hmm. Party scenes are very crucial for these kinds of movies. There's where all the plot strands kind of come to a head. I always feel like party scenes are big scenes in superhero films. And here we get the love story coming to a head. Stark and Pepper almost kiss. We find out that Obadiah is definitely the bad guy. He locked him out of the company. And then we find out that, yeah, the weapons, because Christine, that Vanity Fair piece that he had a while back. Because <laughs> Vanity Fair is where I go for my hard-hitting war news. <laughs> well, she does blow the whistle on the fact that his weapons are ending up in the hands of terrorists. I think a lot of things happen in this party scene, as they should, and it is a great scene. Something else that happens in the scene that I just noticed for the first time this watching, this scene saves Pepper's life. Because Stark is greeted by Agent Coulson, who's been wandering around this whole movie since Stark got back from the Strategic Homeland Intervention Enforcement and Logistics Division, trying to set up an appointment. Here he finally gets to Stark, and Stark sets up an appointment, and it, later on that really comes into play. Yep, good juggling act. Good job, Favreau. But here's the point where, it, really, I feel like maybe the diciest proposition, he's got to go back to Afghanistan. Well, he doesn't have to. He chooses to. Again, you're talking about the change of heart. This is where he sees now that he's built this suit for whatever reason, instead of using it to fight a war, he could use it to save those that are oppressed, which a lot of people would say is the reason for war. I, I won't get into it, but it's still kind of confusing. I think it was all said in the opening speech. Some people say the best weapon is one you never have to fire. He prefers a weapon you only have to fire once. As long as he's controlling it now. That's his change of heart. He wants to control the weapons. <laughs> Although that weapon he's speaking about, I think it's in enemy hands now, right? They have the Jericho. We see in this montage of people evacuating the area, something blows up in a very similar manner to the way that his test demonstration is. I think that Raza and his ring guys got what they wanted, even though Stark never built it for him. Keep in mind, we find out very quickly, they weren't hired to get a Jericho. Stane would have sold them a Jericho. He was selling them everything. They were hired to kill Stark, and when they found out who it was they were going to kill, they didn't know. Then they wanted more money. They tried to extort Stane. So the Jericho was never really a goal mm. you're right that was a confusing part for me thanks for illuminating that because i'm like yeah if they have everything else why couldn't they get <laughs> the latest and why would they need to extort him but you're right it's an extortion plot and so he goes back and he doesn't go back for revenge necessarily that may be part of it but 
he does see they have the Jericho. What he had fought so hard to not give them is right there on his television. They have it. It's like, even though he escaped, he might as well have just built the damn thing. Because he did build the damn thing, really. And so he goes to take it back. I mean, he does rescue the people, but it seems his big mission is, I'm going to blow up those Jerichos. Yes. And I don't know if anybody's noticed it or not, but a whole hour has gone by, and we're finally getting into a big action scene. This is, not counting the breakout, really the first true Iron Man action scene yet. And I'm surprised that it took so long, and I'm even more surprised I didn't mind. There have been exciting scenes, though. It's not been all talking. I found that the scene where he flies and ices up was as exciting as his escape, honestly. And it's because of Favreau's direction and the effects and the way it's filmed and the score. It all comes together in such a way that by no means is it dull. Let me clarify. When I say action scenes, I mean fighting scenes. Usually in these movies, and God knows I've seen a lot of them at this point, whenever they don't know what to do with the plot, it's time to get two people in a room and break shit. (laughs) And they haven't needed to do that. They've kept this whole engine running without needing to go to that old saw. And I was surprised that it's been this long before we have him break shit. And you know what? I've been having so much fun throughout this film. It's a funny film. I'm entertained. So do I need the big fight scene necessarily to keep me involved? No, because, gosh, there's acting and good writing and humor and things that should be in movies to keep you engaged. Yeah. All I know is him going back to Afghanistan could have felt as wrong as watching those Autobots roll in (laughs) to fight uh, Hamas. I mean, you really ought to be concerned when you're having a superhero fight a real-world villain. And let's face it, this is bin Laden. This is the Taliban. That's really dicey. But I love this scene. I think it's great fun to see him exert what he's been able to do with this suit. We haven't seen the full range of it. We haven't seen him use the weapons. And when he takes out the bad guys and takes out his weapons... I'm cheering. I'm getting flashbacks at Autobots as I'm watching it this time. This is a scene that is troubling, to say the least, for me. It doesn't set well. It rephrased it for actually tackling real-life villains with terrorists. It's tricky. It seems like two Team America F yeah. Oh, no, no, no. You see, here's the difference between this and the Autobots. The Autobots came from Cybertron for a Cybertronian war that just happened to spill onto America, and then the president's like, hey, can you help us out? We're in a jam. Here, this is Iron man's birthplace tony stark was born in california iron man was born in afghanistan he has this scar that he needs to go face and it may be you know team america f yeah but that's not what i'm thinking i'm thinking tony stark f yeah and it's not a complicated history in which you're trying to extract good guys and bad guys from situations where everyone sort of has a valid point. I mean, these are the new Nazis here. These are really bad goods. I mean, they're killing their own people here. They've created a situation in which it's really not controversial that Iron Man would want to take them out. I think we can all be okay with that. Here's my problem. They're killing their people with weapons that Stark made. So what's Stark's solution? Well, just make another weapon to kill them, which, guess what? That weapon's going to get stolen by the end of the film, too. But he doesn't kill the little henchman guy. I mean, he allows the villagers to meet out their own justice, and maybe it will go the way of Hussein. I don't know what they're going to do, but he is there to take out the weapons. He is not there to kill everyone that had him in captivity. But he does kill everyone, except the one main guy. I mean, you know, all the terrorists are holding villagers hostage, so he targets all their heads and shoots bullets into their heads, kills them. 
Yes, saving all the families. I'm cool with it. I'm cheering. I think that's right. I think that's a non-controversial choice. It's complicated because he's the one that empowered them to do this in the first place. And I don't know if he's learning his lesson because he's making a suit, which is going to be used by the bad guys once again. Oh, and I agree with you. He is not fully yet the hero. He won't be until the very end of this movie. And I'm okay with that because he's still in process. He's still in transformation. Nobody goes from being what Stark is at the beginning into a great guy just because they put on a suit. They need to learn these things. And I, I think he does figure it out. And really, this is Stark's last face-off with the Ten Rings. We need Stark to overcome, not just to escape, but to triumph. He needs it, and we need it. It wouldn't be satisfying if Stain just came in and cleaned up the mess the way he finishes it later. This scene, it shows us what Iron Man can do and gives us the fix. I mean, this guy was waterboarded, everything. You need this scene. And I want to say, I Jacob, I'd be in your boat if the main bad guy was Raza, and it would be like watching Iron Man behead Osama bin Laden. But they have a bigger villain, and it is a self-critical villain. By making it the mentor, and by making it the man that helped him create this war machine, and taking that down with his new machine, I think that's the full transformation. I'm with this moment here, even though I recognize it's not the ultimate transformation of Iron Man. It's the first time Iron Man gets to be the badass, but it's not the time that Iron Man gets to be the hero. I really love the sound design in this. I mean, of course the effects are great, but there's just something about the way they play with soft clangs and then big booms. You know, that tank takes him down and he falls down and he has that cool little shoulder thing that just... And then boom, I just, I love the interplay with the sound design and how little things on this device can set off big explosions. I do like that, but with that tank scene, you know, I'm tired of the I'm so cool, I'm not even going to look at the explosion trope, but for Iron Man, it works. Yeah. (laughs) Because it's a well-framed scene. It's not just I'm a badass walking in slow-mo. It's Iron Man filling a third of the frame, following that rule of thirds, and the tank exploding in two-thirds. The look of it lets me forgive them for doing that tired thing. And it's Stark's M.O. I mean, he is an arrogant prick. There's no reason to think that he wouldn't walk around with this kind of strut. He hasn't totally changed yet. I mean, it fits the character. And then there's some irony because he's immediately attacked by U.S. Air Force. Here's a scene that makes me like Rhodey a lot. When he has the call where he gets caught up in the dogfight, and he's got to basically come out to Rhodes because if he doesn't, they're going to kill him. But again, before he comes out, there's that first phone call and I don't get it. It's like Rhodey is accusing Stark of having tech in Galmyra that they don't know about. Like, has Stark ever shown a propensity towards firing his own weapons before? Yes, Stark has shown a propensity for doing his own thing without cluing in Rhodey all the time, like leaving him up at a podium with no one to give a trophy to. This is how he works. He's not a sharer. He's not a team player. He is a selfish entrepreneur, and I don't think it's the wrong instinct for Rhodey to suspect that his operation is being used as a test ground for Stark Industries' latest toy. When Stark is calling Rhodey on the cell phone, did either of you pick up on what Rhodey's ringtone was? Nope. It's a digitization of the 1960s Iron Man cartoon. Back with the Doctor banner, there was a companion Iron Man cartoon, and that was the theme on Rhodey's phone for Stark. 
I do remember that that existed. I couldn't, you know, they didn't have a theme as wretched as Hulk, so I just never <laughs> memorized it. But yeah, he does eventually have to come out, and the way the scene in Galmyra doesn't work for you, Jacob, this Air Force scene doesn't entirely work for me. I mean, yeah, he's a billionaire, but the statement, you have to buy me a new jet, I think that would hurt even Tony Stark. I thought it was hilarious. Really? You owe me a plane? Technically, he hit me. I love it. It's hilarious. Yeah, I don't have a problem with this scene at all, Artie. I think it's fun. The dog fights, you know, when he's holding on to the belly of the plane to hide. Eh, it's a fun scene. And then he gets back and his secret identity is revealed to Pepper. On accident, she's coming down to, you know, clean up business, what she always does. And he can't get the operating hands to take off the suit without tearing them apart. <laughs> Great line. This isn't the worst thing you've caught me doing. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's fun. Yeah, it's funny because it's true. In life and in this character. But here we're revving up for Act 3. Here is where we find out who the real villain is. We know Bridges is bad. We know that he's not an ally. But we're not supposed to have suspected, although I think I pretty much figured it out early, (laughs) that he is the one that sold the men these Stark weapons and that he was allowing Tony to be at gunpoint. I can go with all of that. I really can. I can go with Stain sat in the background. Stain did some underhanded dealings and Stain wanted to be the number one guy. So he got his terrorist partners to do this thing where it starts to stretch credibility as Stain secretly flies to Afghanistan with his cadre of personal troops. Yeah, I don't think that's legal. <laughs> no, it isn't what you would do, but it would be very confusing to do it over the phone. <laughs> you need to be able to see that it's Jeff Bridges taking the suit out of the tent in order to understand how he really got it. It's just cleaner that way, even though it's not logically what would happen. It wouldn't be as fun just watching the FedEx guy walk up and deliver the suit. <laughs> Probably not. I have shipped you your suit. The tracking number is... <laughs> One Z. <laughs> and you wouldn't get to see his little, uh, what is that device? That's, it's a sound wave that... It's a paralysis. Causes, yeah, your yeah. blood vessels pop out. It's alarming, I can tell you that. And this is where we see that Stain is willing to get his hands dirty because he orders all these people killed. We presume that his soldiers go in and kill Raza, too, although we don't see it. So maybe Raza will pop up in part three. I'm not ruling that out. But (laughs) he has all of the remaining Ten Rings people who Iron Man left alive. Stain kills them. But I can still go with that, even. And then he goes back to the States and wants a suit of his own. To sell for a night out on the town... (laughs) You didn't really imagine that Obadiah always wanted to, like, be in the jet fight or to be the one to fire the trigger. It's puzzling. I agree. I feel like if I didn't like Jeff Bridges, the actor, so much, I probably would be asking more whys with this character. It doesn't really make sense the more we pick at it here. I didn't think he was making the suit for himself. He just wanted to make it to sell to the military. But it's custom made for him. I mean, the first one that they build extracted from the prototype is one that he will wear. Yeah, because he's about to get arrested and put in jail. (laughs) You don't think it would have taken him for a test run? No, I don't think the seat was custom made for his buttocks. No, (laughs) maybe not. The only way that this relationship makes sense to me, and it's actually queued up in that opening montage when we learned about Stark, is it's kind of a Bill Gates 
versus Steve Jobs, isn't it? <laughs> you, I want you to invent it so I can steal it and mass market it and make all the money from it. Like they have a picture of Young Stark with Gates early in that montage, and then they cut to Jeff Bridges and him. I wondered if maybe that was something that they were playing off of. It's the Warriors of Silicon Valley as a superhero. Maybe didn't they have a similar plot like this though in the Aviator? They're big driving force here was Howard Hughes. That was who they kept modeling Stark after. And with Stark going kind of crazy, didn't Hughes lose control of his own company for a while? Sure. Yeah, I know. I, I think that the inventor that struggles with business is a common trope. Yes, I definitely see that as well. But to, to see a contemporary battle, I mean, they're equals in some way, but Obadiah can't do what Stark can do. Nobody can do what Stark can do, and that's why he's going to be the hero and the others are going to be the villain. And much in life, I feel like that's kind of come true as well between PC and Mac. While I'm losing track of the character, I am loving Jeff Bridges' performance here. This guy, he can play nice so well, but when he wants to be evil, he has such a great voice when he goes, Stark built this thing in a cave! With a box of scraps! Yeah. One of the best delivered lines. I wrote that one down. I loved it. Just a great line, great delivery. He can do a menacing and creepy voice very well. It's only a half step off from laconic to creepy anyway, but he is giving a great performance here, like you say, Stuart, but I'm just a bit confused. Did you guys recognize the scientist who he's yelling at? I'm guessing not, but... (laughs) (laughs) Oh, yeah. Well, if he got this thing built, he might shoot his eye out. No, are you serious? I am dead serious. Ralphie? Ralphie from A Christmas Story, Peter Billingsley, Close, close BFF of John Favreau, been in almost every Favreau movie, eventually directed Favreau in Couples Retreat. This is him here. He executive produced this movie. Cool. But even not knowing Stain is out there murdering people, not knowing he's building a suit, Stark just thinks he's selling arms illegally, goes to gather evidence, and this is when Stain finally has to take direct action here and not through a goon hit squad, but himself first person going to take out tony yeah it's a tense scene that they play off of pepper and the one real false note i have in the movie that she briefly quits and then decides okay i'll go spy for you i don't know what that was about but (laughs) when she does go and do it she's downloading the files that are gonna bust obadiah and it's over for him and he's watching her and it's tony's office so he can't accuse her of anything but he is very suspicious about what she might have found out on the computer and i love the way that colson steps in and saves the day that appointment is actually at that moment and had it not been well we might not have pepper in the sequel i had this problem the first few times i saw the movie when stain does take the arc reactor right out of tony's chest I'm like, why didn't he put a bullet in Tony's head? Because he obviously wasn't afraid to kill all of the Ten Rings folk. And it's not like if somebody found Tony Stark at home and he's missing his heart piece, they're not going to suspect some kind of foul play. No, I disagree. I think that's exactly it. Is if they found out that Tony was dead and that his piece was missing, I think that they could say exactly that. That it malfunctioned. We don't know how it works. 
but he did have the shrapnel in there and it eventually killed him. Nothing killed him but that original weapon. You know, it was his own weapon that caused the bomb that put the shrapnel in his heart. So, yeah, if it finally caught up with him, I don't think most of us would be any the wiser. I think it was the reason not to put a bullet in his head and make it murder. And I don't think the public even knew what was going on with him. They said he was just on leave. He was resting. He wasn't out in public except when he was Iron Man. Right. So it had just been this mysterious death. Uh, why does he have a hole in his chest? That's kind of odd. Plus, I just like the metaphor. He's like, I'm taking your heart. I'm taking the soul of your company away from you. It's the right poetic way to kill Tony. The wrong poetic way is to have a businessman put on a giant suit of armor and start rampaging through Los Angeles. You know, I didn't like this when I originally saw it in the theater as well. I felt like it was the kind of simple big baddie fight we always complain about in these movies. We run out of ideas and so something large comes in Iron Man or whoever defeats it. I kind of dug it this time. I don't know what's different. Maybe just my attitude. Maybe I was just prepared for it coming, but I actually think it's kind of fun to watch these two fight. Well, Stuart, I was <laughs> I wrote this down. I had questions for you just after doing the Hulk saying, "Why isn't the Hulk fighting monsters? He needs to fight things big and strong." Like, we yeah. get that in this film. So I was wondering if you're going to come around to that. No, I, I feel like this movie is sophisticated enough. They probably didn't have to go that route, but I'm kind of glad they did. I feel like the battle between father and son, it's not unlike that Ang Lee thing. It's father and son here clashing about who will have control. Well, it's a lot less esoteric, a lot more understandable here to do it this way than the way they did it in Ang Lee. Maybe it's not as cool. Maybe it's not as arty, but I'm more into the fight. I'll say this. The fight is a lot of fun. I like how the fight is choreographed. I like how the action plays out. It's exciting. It's just the conceit that set up the fight that I have trouble with. And Jeff Bridges has some terribly cliche, just movie comic book villain dialogue here. Like he aims a gun at Pepper and instead of pulling the trigger, starts going, your services are no longer required. It's this whole movie. We talked about how it was believable. All of a sudden, when Jeff Bridges puts on the suit, I'm in a comic book. It's fun, but it's not the same level of quality I got for the first hour 40. Yeah, here's my problem is you have arguably two of the world's smartest men and they're just going to punch each other. Yes, it's an action film. Yes, it's superheroes. I wish it was a little bit smarter. That said, I do like some of the choreography of the fight here. And, you know, when Obadiah is picking up the car with the people and he's going to throw it, Iron Man takes him out and catches the car. There's that great scene towards the end of the fight where Iron Man uses his repulsor to kind of propel himself up into the air and, and punch Obadiah. There's some good scenes. I wish it was a little bit smarter. I really like the idea that the way they framed it is because he has to go back to the old heart, it can't power the suit as well. It's more rudimentary. So he's limited on juice. I think that that's what they call a ticking clock that I really like. You know that's going to catch up with him and win. And that's what gives the Obadiah Iron Man the advantage here. That's why we think that it's possible that Downey may lose because he's not fighting a fair fight. That's what makes it exciting for me is watching him run out of juice. And Tony does get that heart piece back and he's accompanied by Rhodey. Rhodey is pretty easily forgotten in this climax. Poor guy. He's like, next time I'm going to get to be in the suit. I'm like, yeah, not this movie. <laughs> not next movie either. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, not for Terrence Howard. I guess we'll talk about that. I have seen Iron Man 2, so I do know that this is his final moments in the Marvel Universe. 
what I really don't like about this, Arnie, is Favreau a big Star Wars fan? Yes, he's in fact even done a voice of a Star Wars character in The Clone Wars. Okay, so that's why he just took the end of Return of the Jedi and ended this film the same way. I mean, you throw the bad guy down the reactor chute, so he dies. I I disagree with you there. Oh, come on. Yes, a guy falls into a reactor, but if (laughs) Downey picked up Obadiah from behind, carried him, and threw him down the shaft, that would be end of Return of the Jedi. Here, this is just every other movie, including Return of the Jedi, ever, where there's a big explosion and the bad guy dies because the bad guy can't live, otherwise they'll get out on parole. I don't know why she had to overload the reactor. Why did Tony tell her to do that? Was he planning to make it a weapon? To electrocute him. That's what I took it as. There is another alternative suggestion, which you can hear about in my review of Peter David's Iron Man novelization over at Marvelicious Toys. Okay. I'm not going to read that, but I will listen to that. In the movie, though, I take it as, yeah, he's weaponizing the reactor. Okay. So it wasn't like he wanted to destroy the Ark and keep it for himself. I thought that that might have been a motivation, but with a weird selfish choice for a character that's become completely selfless, it played weird to me. But I accepted it as an ending. It may not be the perfect ending, but we needed Obadiah to die in a big, spectacular way. And, you know, he had blinded his visor, so he had taken the iron off of him. That's why Iron Man is protected. Downey is still in his suit. The blast would have killed him. Well, plus we have to see the actor's face, right? (laughs) Yes, well, that's always helpful. Although I have to give this movie credit for that, the cam, the in-helmet cam. That is a wonderful way to show us the actor's face while they're in the suit. I love how the HUD is in front of him. I think that was a great creative decision. Yeah, I like to see actors' faces. Maybe that's a problem with a lot of superhero things is the mask obstructs it. It depersonalizes because we can go inside the suit and watch them watching what's going on. Yeah, it's more exciting. Now... You had a problem with him possibly blowing up the arc reactor to keep it to himself. I had a problem with him telling Pepper to blow up the arc reactor, thinking it would kill him and Stain both. This isn't the end of Wrath of Khan, where Spock must sacrifice himself to save the entire crew. This is, alright, Obadiah is on a bit of a rampage, and he'll calm down later. The police now know where to look for him, and they will eventually overpower that. They may need a tank. I don't think this is exactly a, I may die, but I'll take him with me kind of moment. Obadiah just doesn't seem evil enough. The stakes aren't high enough. He was selling missiles to Osama bin Laden or the Marvel Universe version. I mean, he's pretty bad. The stakes in this fight weren't high enough. The need to take him down instantly was not immediate enough to have Stark risk his own life. Yeah, because what was he going to do? Was he going to run off to a secret factory and build more ironmonger suits? No. I don't know where he's going to run off to in his little suit. I would presume that, actually. I would assume that he would mass market an army and sell it to, well, somebody new. Or maybe <laughs> Raza. I mean, I don't think that Raza is dead. I think he's just been bit slapped. I think Raza's dead. Everybody else was being shot off camera. I think Raza was next. But, I mean, he'd need a factory, which he lost, in order to mass produce them. And he'd need more mini arc reactors, which he can't make. He had to steal one. Well, if there's ten rings, there's nine other places that he can probably sell to, and I imagine that he probably had them on speed dial. (laughs) 
But Tony's wait for me to get off the roof, oh, fire while I'm on the roof is all for nothing because she fires it while he's on the roof and he's just fine. You know, if you're going to be mad about that, I feel like you probably will hate every movie. I mean, there's always a fantastical part to these movies where it stretches beyond credibility. And I accept that this is a comic book at this point. They made everything else so plausible. I don't mind when it becomes implausible in little moments. They've made everything else so plausible that when it becomes Fantastic Four, Rise of the Silver Surfer for the last 20 minutes, I have problems. I'm with you, Artie. I agree. They got me to buy in so much into the quote-unquote reality of this film that when they take these liberties when it's not quite as smart as it's been for the last couple of hours it's a letdown yeah it draws more attention to itself than it would have if the film hadn't been so tight to begin with but this is not the ending this is the end battle there's another ending here and that's the really smart one they bring us back to the press conference you know and this is where he finally has accepted his destiny you know it's the perfect way to end it they could have kept it up like they do every other damn superhero thing and had him wink at us and say oh I know nothing about it and you know keep it his secret identity but no not this guy he's got to tell the world I am Iron Man and I love that that is a very smart and clever and original way to end this movie I can't ever think of a movie that's ended with the superhero outing himself proudly on TV. Yeah, you wouldn't believe this character. You wouldn't believe this Tony Stark if he didn't do that at the end of this film. And Arnie, you said the fight in Afghanistan, that was your F yeah moment. This was my F yeah moment in this film when he just says, I am Iron Man. I'm like, yes, yes, that is what this Iron Man is about. Being in front of the public and saying, yep, that's me. Because he wants to save the day, but he wants people to know he's saving the day. Yep, he's reformed. He's got a redemption story, but he hasn't entirely changed. And that's why we love him. We didn't want that side of him to be excised and becoming a goody-goody. You know, you can be a superhero and still be a conceited little bastard. I like that about Tony. I also like that they toyed with me because when I'm watching this at the end, I'm like, is he going to go public with it? Oh, they're really going with the bodyguard story because I knew that bodyguard story from the comics. And so I'm like, oh, they're going to really do the bodyguard story. So it's a great way to wink at it the same way they had the evolution of the armor just by including the bodyguard story as his cover story, even for just a minute, literally, was a wonderful nod to the origin to me. But by this point, I think secret identities are so 1980s, aren't they? (laughs) And so at this point, I think everybody knew him in the Marvel Universe, so they might as well out him in this movie. It made sense to me, and what a great end note. Black Sabbath Iron Man? Yeah, if it couldn't get any better than that, boy, when that comes in, the whole theater, (laughs) whole theater, it was mad. It was like being at a monster truck rally, and I wanted to be there, too. You know, it was great. In all my research for this Iron Man podcast, the single best thing I ever learned is that song was originally entitled Iron Bloke. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, my God, what a different universe we would be living in if that were the case. Well... Lots of works of genius could have ended up being on the scrap heap with just a small miss of the brush and, you know, masterpieces become garbage. That is certainly a terrible title. But that's not really the last scene. No, but I got to say, I had heard about that even in the theaters. I heard, stay for the credits. It's going to be incredible. They're going to do something amazing. This is an incredible scene for comic book geeks. It wasn't an incredible scene for me. I got to say, when we got there, the first time, it made no damn sense (laughs) to me. All right, Sam. (laughs) 
Jackson Jackson. He had been just fighting some snakes on a plane, and now he's here with an eye patch. I guess now that I've seen Hasselhoff, it's a whole different bag. (laughs) (laughs) But Stewart, it's Samuel L. Jackson. That's supposed to excite you. Even if you're not a comic book fan, him showing up being a badass. I mean, come on, as a fan of cinema, that should be enough. It wasn't enough at the time, but you know, now that I can see what they're doing here, I don't think I understood what we were building in this franchise. I am excited. I am excited to go forward and to get to not only Iron Man 2, but everything else that they're going to hit on here. I want the Avengers when I see this scene. Yeah, I was shocked when he says we're working on the Avengers initiative. I'm like, huh? Because Warner Brothers has been trying to do Justice League forever. Like, how do you get this big ensemble comic book movie? It's a pipe dream. There's no way they can ever be done. Just too many personalities. And now here they are hinting at that? Really? Okay, let's see if you can pull it off. I knew this was coming because just a couple months after Iron Man came out, Hulk came out. They really were hitting hard. Two movies in one summer. The other plans were fuzzy, and dates did shift. Avengers was supposed to come a lot sooner than it did. But they did get this off the ground. I knew this scene was coming. It did not disappoint. Marvel has this marvelous way of leaving me in almost every movie with goosebumps about the next one. I had really loved Iron Man, but this set up a whole new game. I couldn't see it then. I see it now. And you're right. They are definitely set themselves up for something epic. So, Jacob Stewart, do you recommend Iron Man? Jacob? When it comes to comic book films, there's a few that stand out as game changers. Ones that just, they took the comic book movie genre in a new direction. And... I'm going to say Iron Man is one of those game changers. You took a C-list superhero that no one knew about unless you read the comics. It brought a great story. It was tight for the most part, some great action, a charismatic lead, and not a bad supporting cast. And it did something great. It made a great sci-fi superhero comic book action film that's highly entertaining, that keeps me engaged. It's not making me roll my eyes when I'm seeing these crazy things like making an Iron Man suit out of missiles. I'm buying into it. Yeah, I recommend this. This is one of the best comic book genre movies. Strong recommend. Stuart. All I can do is survey where we come from and ask again, why was it so hard to do this? I mean, from all of the just yawning chasm of mediocrity, I have seen this story so many times and not recommended it, sometimes very strongly. And here, effortlessly, as if an alloy formed from materials not of this earth, they have created, I will go ahead and say it, the best Marvel movie I have seen, including the good X-Men movies, even the really good X-Men movie, First Class, this outclasses it. This is the best superhero movie we've watched in this retrospective. And I am greatly encouraged in a way that I could not be through all of that sludge and mediocrity to see where we're going. I have not largely seen these adventure movies other than Iron Man 2. I don't know what's expected, but if they're half as good as this... I'm in for a good ride. I'm excited. So it's a very strong recommend from a very relieved, reluctant superhero movie watching person. Uh, Strongest of recommend. It's made the last year worth it, right? I can't say that. I would like some time back. I don't know how long any of us have to live and nobody should have to endure some of the things that I have. But 
I'm happy that we are doing these movies, for sure. And for me, I walked into the theater, like I said earlier, not really sold on Iron Man. And this movie did for me what I think we've only said one other time. It's what Doctor Strange did for Stuart. It made me want to read Iron Man comics. Because I wanted more. I wanted to know more about who was this guy. I mean, I had no idea who Iron Monger was watching this movie. And I'm like, who is the stain? And I hit Wikipedia and I went and picked up some comics. This movie is such a fun ride that... Sometimes with these retrospective series, if there's a movie that I'd seen recently and I go to watch it for now playing, I'm sitting down and it's like I'd rather be doing something else even if it's a movie I like. Here, even though I just watched Iron Man for fun a few months ago, I was so game to watch it again. This is in contention for my favorite comic book movie of all time. I hate saying what favorite of all time is. It shifts on given day. But I will say it is up there with Kick-Ass, X-Men First Class, The Dark Knight, and one of the Spider-Man films that we will get to. And Iron Man. Those are... The ones that if I had to pick a favorite on a given day, those are the only ones I would go to. It has some weaknesses at the end that I pointed out, but it doesn't really matter. If you get a tremendous meal at a five-star restaurant, are you going to complain because the bread was crunchy and you like your bread soft? No. I love this movie, and it is the strongest recommend I can give. So this is a long time coming. We all strongly recommend to see something. That is a great feeling and one we don't do nearly enough, guys. Congratulations. This is a rare find indeed. Thank God you recommended something, Stuart. (laughs) It's been a long time. Tell me about it. It's not like I wanted to be a hater. Let's hope we can keep it up. Next week, we have what came just a couple months after this, Incredible Hulk with Edward Norton, and from the director of Transporter. So again, getting known quantities, but not necessarily the ones you'd instantly put in those roles to bring another Marvel hero to screen, helmed by Marvel Studios. Well, I'm a little Hulk shy, but you know what? Like I said, if they can keep this feeling up, even if it's not as good as Iron Man, if they can take the best ideas here and run with it, I'd like to see a six recommend. Bring it on. Well, we will talk about that next week. So until next time, Avengers Assemble! There's been speculation that I was involved in the events that occurred in the freeway and the rooftop. I'm sorry, Mr. Stark, but do you honestly expect us to believe that that was a bodyguard in a suit that conveniently appeared, despite the fact that... I know that it's confusing. It is one thing to question the official story and another thing entirely to make wild accusations or insinuate that I'm uh, a superhero. I never said you were a superhero. Didn't? Mm -mm. Well, good, because that would be outlandish and uh, fantastic. Truth is, I am Iron Man. Thank you for listening to this episode of the now playing Avengers retrospective series. We're adjourned. We're adjourned for the day. Okay. You've been a delight. Part of our Marvel Comics movie retrospective series. This is a whole new level of weird. I don't feel inclined to step away from it. Come back to NowPlayingPodcast.com each week as we review another movie based on the Marvel Comics. 
through the release of The Avengers this May. Your work has impressed a lot of people who are much smarter than I am. And be sure to visit Venganza Media Gazette at venganzamedia.com forward slash gazette to read Arnie's reviews of every episode of The Incredible Hulk TV series. A new review is posted every day. God bless you, brother. While at NowPlayingPodcast.com, go to our archives, where you can find reviews of other Marvel Comics movie series, such as X-Men, The Fantastic Four, Blade, and Punisher, plus reviews of The Avengers' early works, like the Bill Bixby Incredible Hulks movies and the Captain America TV movies. Good luck keeping up. We also have non-comic-based movie reviews, such as Star Trek, Terminator, Halloween, A Nightmare on Elm Street, Tron, and many more. Guys, I'm bringing the party to you. You will also find individual movie reviews such as Green Lantern, Cowboys and Aliens, Avatar, and Scott Pilgrim vs. The World. We made this thing, all of us. Please. While at NowPlayingPodcast.com, be sure to join our forums where you can discuss this show with other listeners. Here we remain as a beacon of hope, shining out across the stars. You can also follow Now Playing on Facebook and Twitter, where the hosts post new episode announcements and written movie reviews. You've seen what he becomes, right? I have. And it's beautiful. Godlike. The links to our social media pages can be found at NowPlayingPodcast.com. Therefore, what I'm saying, if I'm saying anything, is welcome back. Support from listeners like you help keep Now Playing operating. You have to explain that statement, sir. You can find a link to donate using PayPal at the bottom of our website, nowplayingpodcast.com. Is it too much of a problem to ask? Because I'm, I'm... Okay, okay. I really need your help here. You can also show your love of Now Playing Podcast by shopping in our store, where you can buy t-shirts, totes, boxers, coffee mugs, teddy bears, and much more. Get yourself something nice for me. I already did. And? Oh, it's very nice. Yeah. Very tasteful. Now Playing's Avengers Retrospective Series is edited by Arnie. I've moved on to the next one, because that's what we do, right? I mean, that's the job. Now Playing Credit Narration by Brock. Wow. You spoke to me with what you did, and I know that you knew that I'd be listening. Now Playing is not affiliated with Marvel Enterprises or Marvel Studios, Paramount Pictures, Universal Pictures, or the Disney Company. The Avengers, Captain America, Iron Man, Thor, The Incredible Hulk, and all that the Marvel Universe contains are the property and trademark of the Disney Company, and no infringement is intended. You really think that just because you have an idea, it belongs to you? The opinions expressed on Now Playing are those of the individual hosts and may not reflect the opinion of Venganza Media Incorporated. Just stick to the official statement and soon this will all be behind you. Now Playing is a Venganza Media production, copyright 2012, all rights reserved. Any last words? Hulk! Smash! Next time, baby. Today we're discussing Iron Man, starring Robert Downey Jr., Gwyneth Paltrow, Crap. Terrence Howard, Jeff Bridges, some guy named Raza, <laughs> Clark Gregg. I accidentally ha- I had the cast list up for Iron Man 2. <laughs> so I'm like, Don Cheadle. 
Don Cheadle's not in this. But then I couldn't remember Terrence Howard's name. I'm sitting there. Terrence Howard? Uh, I couldn't remember. <laughs> Directed by John Favreau. You're Arnie. Hold on, hold on. I have to change page. <laughs> this is going to be a long recording. <laughs> you got to go look up notes to see who you are. <laughs> oh, sh- I'm going to call work now. Can't come in. <laughs> Still recording. <laughs> this is Arnie, and oh, yeah, I can podcast. You. That was my line. Okay, I, I have a second one. one. I have a second one. I have a second one. <laughs> and acrimonious. <laughs> I had a second one ready, but man, I'd have to look for it now. <laughs> I have a second one. I am Arnie Man, co-host of Now Playing. Say maybe without man. I am. Are you, I assume you're going to do something with the voice, right? Arnie Man. All right, how about this? <laughs> I, That's that good. <laughs> I am Arnie Man, co-host of Now Playing Arnie Man. Much better. <laughs> There's ones now. These aren't like the little indie kick-ass. Are you there, Jacob? I lost you. Uh-oh, I heard. Okay, yeah, I lost him too. I thought it was just me. Maybe he had to reboot or something. Mm, I pity him. I'm just glad it's not me this time. We go round robin, don't we? Mm, yeah. Assembling the Avengers is nothing compared to getting these three people to get through a show <laughs> without technical issues. <laughs> Avir Rod and need a name. Um, Muffy. <laughs> it's a name. <laughs> Jacob, you agree. We've never seen PCU, and we're not about to start. Now, oh, I, right? I've seen it, and that's why I. I <laughs> I don't know why Arnie always goes back. Goes back. Arnie, I don't know. It's a touchstone for some. <laughs> I, I, I. Tony Stark is a billionaire. Billionaire. <laughs> <laughs> we still would have followed Tony Stork. St- Stork. Stork. We would I have some sirens coming down the street. I don't know if you want to wait for a second. I have no idea who started yeah, the Yeah, I could hear them. Yeah, I could too. I thought it was outside my own window, though. It's Venice. Somebody set something on fire at the beach. Now what's happening? Are you snoring coke? <laughs> Listen, if that worked for Robert Downey, I mean, my <laughs> wife says Robert Downey is the worst don't do drugs poster ever. D- <laughs> Do drugs, you're going to become handsome, famous, rich, and charismatic. <laughs> well, after a decade of hell and some pretty awful movies. All right, that, if that's the deal I have to make with the devil, one bad decade for that, okay. <laughs> and it's one decade where I'm going to spend a lot of it high. <laughs> when Curly gets hit over the head with a shovel, sure, if I were doing it now playing, I'd be like, well, he'd probably have a concussion and a subdural hematoma. He wouldn't just go, woo, woo. Let's not do that retrospective ever. <laughs> uh, what? We got the, the rebate. Oh, hell no. I'm not seeing that. I'd rather be doused in toxic materials. Take my chances becoming a superhero than sitting through that. Just say mo. <laughs> no. ah! 
Yeah, I, I guess it would have been asking too much for the billionaire to use his money to feed the people, give them a better life, and said, hey, here's the guy, get some revenge, kill him. We don't know that he doesn't do that. It just, why would we want to see that in this movie? That's something else. I mean, that's something that I feel like Angelina Jolie would want to do. <laughs> I mean, adopt a few of the children. 